Now, this morning I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. This will be the third in a series of messages on the metrics of grace. We've been looking at the marks of what Jonathan Edwards described as a fruitful church. A fruitful church, first of all, has a desire to highly esteem the Lord Jesus, and that's what worship is. Last Sunday we looked at the second metric of a uh, fruitful church, and that is a readiness to confess and repent. We keep short accounts with God. We don't let things drag on. We get them all settled. But we put it behind us uh, as we confess and repent to one another, uh, as we talked about it last week. Remember, we want to talk to each other, not about each other. And now today, we want to look at the third mark of a fruitful church, and that is a realization of the supernatural power of the Bible. I hope you all picked up an outline as you came in. It'll help you as we work our way through this, but this book that we hold in our hands is a power source. It is supernaturally given to us by God to guide us. This is our guide for living. And we need to understand that this is not just another book. This is a supernatural book that's been given to us by the living God. I believe that our worship of God is always enhanced when we give our full attention to the supernatural character of the Word of God. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 119-130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You see, as the written word of God, as this book is faithfully proclaimed, we are able to introduce people to the living word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a direct relationship between the written word and the living word. And the more we study and the more we grasp the grand plan of salvation and how God wants us to live through the written word, the more deeply we fall in love with Jesus, who is the living word. And apart from a daily encounter with God and his word, uh, we cannot live lives that please him. Indeed, here at East Bay, one of the things that I've discovered is that the Word of God gives us our identity and our major focus. I've asked a lot of people, what attracted you to East Bay Calvary? And almost without exception, the first thing people say is a strong commitment to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, that this is a congregation that has been under the authority of God's truth. Now, that is not necessarily the case in our culture at large. We live in an era where we don't talk about God's truth, supernatural truth, we talk about my truth. This is my truth, this is my truth. The problem with my truth is that it varies from one person to another, it is not absolute truth, it is not supernatural truth. People today are consumed with my truth, the way I view things. And we forget that God has given to us a supernatural truth that is a revealed message to man of who God is and what he wants to accomplish in our lives. 
This book is the book that points us to Jesus. And this is the book that transforms our lives. Now, it is true that we can get too little of the Word of God, but we can never get too much. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who was on a particular trip uh, in uh, Ireland, and he stopped at a wayside inn, and he happened to see a worm-eaten Bible right by his bedside. And he picked up the Bible, and one worm had started in Genesis and eaten right straight through to Revelation. And Spurgeon looked at that, and he said, Oh, Lord, make me a bookworm like that. You know, I want to saturate my mind with the Word of God. You see, the question is not how many times have you been through the Bible. The question is, has the Bible ever gotten through you? We need to allow the truth of the Word of God to daily transform us. And we need to pray this prayer of Spurgeon, Lord, make me hungry for your word. I want to know your truth more than anything else. And so when we gather in a worship celebration here at Calvary, much like this, we do so not to speculate, not to opinionate, not to politicize. We come to teach and to preach what's in this book. See, I don't have anything to say to you except what's in the book. And I try to always be, make sure, you know, I've done this before, we want to be under the authority of this book. We don't want to bring the book down to our level and impose our evaluation of the book. We want to let the book speak for itself. It's a powerful book. It is a life-changing book. And it helps us to focus our attention upon Jesus, who in the words of the apostle uh, Paul in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we want to know who God is, if we want to understand his plan for our lives, his purpose for our lives, then this book will lead us straight to Jesus. Now, the reason we value this book so highly is that this is not a ordinary book. It is a supernatural book that has been supernaturally communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. And it's a book that always focuses on Jesus. It's not of human origin, but rather it is a God's supernatural revelation of himself to us. Peter, in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, puts it this way. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved upon these men to such a degree that they knew what was being communicated to them was not of their own origination. They didn't make this up. It was supernaturally given to them and they were kept from error as they allowed the Holy Spirit to breathe out this incredible truth that we have in our Bibles. Now, the book of Acts records some very interesting stories and we discover that in these stories we see the transforming power of the Word of God. The first one I want you to be reminded of is found in Acts chapter 8. It's the encounter that Philip has with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, 
the Spirit takes Philip and he confronts this Ethiopian eunuch, a high governmental official who is in his chariot and he's reading the scriptures. And Philip comes alongside and says, what are you reading? And he talks about, in that particular passage, well, I'm reading about something I don't understand. I need somebody to explain it to me. And Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? And the youth eunuch says, how can I understand unless someone explains it? And then Peter discovers that he's reading in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and he's reading the chapter about the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus. He's reading from Isaiah 53. And you'll notice that as he continues on in this, that the, uh, that the writer says, that as they traveled along, verse 36, here in Acts chapter 8, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water, why shouldn't I be baptized? If you could look up a little bit further in verse 34 and 35, uh, the eunuch asks Philip, tell me, please, who's the, pro- who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And in the process of just explaining the Word of God to this eunuch, this eunuch is saved, he is transformed, and the minute he sees a little bit of water, he wants to be baptized. He wants to follow Jesus in identifying with him in baptism. Uh, Philip seizes the moment, he presents the gospel message, and this eunuch is completely transformed. Another instance of the transformative power of the Bible is seen in Paul's experience in Acts 17. Uh, you'll remember that Paul's custom was to go into a Jewish synagogue uh, or a place of worship each time he would visit the city. And he does this in Acts 17. Notice verse 2, to reason with the Jewish leaders about the meaning of the scriptures. And that word to reason with means to debate or to mingle with thought or to revolve over and over again in one's mind. And as he as he presents the gospel and as he presents a defense, we see in Acts 17 and verse 3 that part of his logic involves explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead. He goes on to say, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. When he's talking about explaining That word means to open the mind so that one understands or to rouse a desire to learn. You see, that is why we come on a Sunday morning or in a small group. We have a desire to understand and to listen and to learn and to allow the truth of the Word of God to completely transform our lives. This book is filled with supernatural good news. It is a book that we must value and always hold in high esteem. This is a book that reveals to us the love that God has for us. It reveals to us how much God loves us because he sends his son Jesus to go to Calvary and pay our price. Now in 1 Peter, getting back to the text here this morning, 1 Peter 1, 23 to chapter 2, verse 3, 
we discover why the Word of God is transformative in everything we do. And Peter gives us a great foundation in verse 3. He reminds these believers in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 that they are suffering for their faith. He reminds them that they have been made brand new to a living hope. Notice, it is a living hope. This is a living book. We are born from above. We are made new because of the hope that we have in Jesus. And because of this newfound relationship with God, Peter urges these new believers in verses 13 to 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1 to live holy lives. To not live by the standards of the world, but to live lives that are pleasing to God. And in the next section of verses, verses 17 to 21, he counsels them to conduct themselves in reverence, ever remembering the precious blood of Jesus that has been shed for them. And in verse 22, he nudges them on notice to a sincere love for one another. His desire is that those who've been transformed by this book, who have received Jesus, live transformatively in their relationships with each other. But beginning in verse 23, and I want you to notice this very carefully, he calls their attention to the supernatural power of the Word of God. This book is in a class all by itself. It must become not a dust collector on our shelf, It needs to be our life's support system. And the supernatural character of the Bible is seen in this paragraph beginning in verse 23. And it continues into chapter 2 through verse 3. Now notice. First of all, the Bible is the living word of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. For you have been born again, or born from above, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and underline these words, through the living and enduring Word of God. This book is a book of life. It is a book that will transform our lives. And it is through the Word of God that we are confronted with our own self-centeredness, our sinfulness and made aware how far we fall short of the glory of God. And it's through this book, you cannot read this book without being convicted of how far we all fall short of the glory of God. It's through the Word of God that we're made conscious of our need for salvation. It's through the Word of God that we understand the plan of salvation. It's through the Word of God that we accept the gift of eternal life. And it's through the Word of God that we come face to face with the certainty of Christ's resurrection. We have a living hope because Christ is the living Savior. This is what differentiates Christianity from all the other world religions. All the other world religions worship a corpse. They have a shrine. Their prophet is dead. He is not alive. Jesus Christ is alive and he remains in a risen state. That is why he can impart eternal life to us. This book tells us the truth about the gospel. This is a book that, my, we must read. It must become our very best friend. Now, 
Notice the writer to the Hebrews put it this way. He said, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Some of the greatest conversions that have ever happened in the history of Christendom have happened as individuals have simply read this book. The great reformer, Martin Luther, the great revivalist, John Wesley, were gloriously transformed simply by reading the text, by reading this book. In fact, as Wesley describes it, he said, my heart was strangely warmed as I read the scriptures. And then he also read Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. The same thing can be said of Chuck Colson. He was one of the people that got caught up in the Watergate scandal during the Nixon presidency. He found himself in prison, but he started reading this book. And in his prison cell, Chuck Colson, this is all he had, but he was gloriously changed. He started prison fellowship. It's touched the lives of hundreds and thousands of people. It's still changing lives even today. But it began when Chuck was exposed to this book. This is a transformative book. And that's why it is to be our true North Star. It's not enough just to read the Bible from cover to cover. You can you memorize scripture till you're blue in the face. The only way it's transformative is when we obey it. When we take it into our hearts and we allow it to change us. A group of four clergymen were discussing the merits of various translations of the Bible. One like the King James, I call it the King Jimmy, because of its simple English. Someone else liked the RSV because it was so literal. Another still liked the NIV because of its contemporary vocabulary. The fourth minister was silent for a while. And then he looked at his colleagues and he said, the translation I liked best was my mom's translation. She translated it into life and it was the best translation I ever saw. Do you realize the Bible tells us as Christ followers, we are living epistles known and read of all men. There are many people that we will touch this coming week that will never ever crack this book. In fact, many don't even own a copy of the Bible. They will not crack this, but you know what's happening? They're reading our lives every single day. And they wanna know, has this book really done its work in us? <laughs> and when this book transforms us, we will begin to influence others in ways that we have no ability to fully understand. You never know who's watching you. Watching how we react to difficulty, watching how we respond to crisis, how we work things through. We are living epistles. This is a living book. Number two, the Bible is not only the living word of God, it is the lasting or the enduring word of God. Look at verse 23. 
through the living and enduring, put a circle around enduring word of God. And verse 25, notice the word of the Lord stands forever. It's a book that is living. It is a book that is lasting. God's truth must be central in our lives because it stands and will continue to stand the test of time. It is timeless in its message. Notice, he says, the word of the Lord stands forever and this is the word that was preached to you. Now, we live in an era where knowledge is exploding exponentially. Back in 1900, between 1900 and 1950, knowledge doubled the accumulated knowledge up to that time. Between 1950 and 1965, that accumulation, accumulated knowledge continued to double. And from 1965 to 75, the sum total of all accumulated knowledge continued to double. But today, because of advanced technologies and accumulated knowledge is doubling almost every other year. We are living in a world that is exploding with knowledge. And yet amidst all the technical and scientific and engineering advancements of our generation, this book has never had to be updated. It's never had to be added to or subtracted. By the way, if you add to or subtract the Word of God, there is great judgment. This book continues to be the world's bestseller year after year after year. 30 million copies of this book are sold every single year. This book lives and it lasts. Why is that true? Because people are looking for a message from God today. At no other time in human history has there been such a desire to understand and to know what the Bible has to say. And Peter illustrates the enduring and lasting quality of the Word of God in verse 24. Notice what he says. He says, all men are like grass and all their glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. How often have you driven through a countryside that is lush with green? And then maybe a year or two later, there's a drought and that lush green has turned to, to just weeds and dryness. No color whatsoever. I remember as a young boy growing up in Kansas and uh, uh, seeing the, what would happen to the droughts when the droughts would come. And a whole field that is brimming with life can be destroyed. And so what does Peter say? He says, the grass withers and the flower fades. We see it all around us. But this book, <laughs> this book continues to stand forever. In reality, there are only two things on earth that are eternal. Write this down. 
Two things. People and God's word. People and God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never, no, never pass away. I just stop and think about it. The only two things in this world that are eternal are people and the word of God. I think of Charlie Tremendous Jones. Many of you probably have heard of him. He's a motivational speaker, travels all over the world, motivating others. On one occasion, he talks about walking into his basement after the Youngstown flood, and all of his awards and all of his trophies and all of his plaques were under four feet of water. And staring at this in disbelief, Charlie heard God say to him, Charlie, not so tremendous, Jones. Don't worry about this. I was going to burn it up anyway. You see, that's reality. The things that we consider here in life that are going to last forever in a moment can be taken away. But the Word of God lasts. It abides. Just for a minute. Think back over the last five to ten years. Who are the great sports heroes? What were the headlines in the newspaper? What were the burning issues of the day five, ten years ago? Do you remember? I remember as a young person growing up in the 60s when the Beatles were at the height of their glory, one of them had the audacity to say, we're more popular than Jesus. Well, the Beatles have broken up as a group. Some of them have even died. But Jesus Christ is alive and well. And he is communicating his heart to us through this book that endures. Take a look at what's happened in the political arena. All the assailants that have come against this book. We've had the Madeline Murray O'Hares that have tried to discredit it. The Joseph Smiths who've added to it. The new atheists, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, who've tried to stamp out this book. In our universities today, I saw this in California when I was there. A professor gets in his classroom and he holds up the Bible and he says, if any of you believe this trash, I'm flunking you. There is an all-out assault today on this book and it's happening in our universities. It's happening all around us. This book has stood up to all the assailants. Friends, the assailants have come and gone, but this book abides. It is God's truth. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Goodness. I get excited about that. I don't know about you, but I do. The Bible, thirdly, is the lucid word of God. It's living, it's lasting, and it is lucid. Now you jump down in verse 2 of chapter 2. By the way, in the original, there is no paragraph between, between verse 25 and chapter 2. This all is in the same context. Therefore, by the way, you know, whenever you see a therefore, you need to know what it's what. Therefore, right? 
Therefore, on the basis of the fact that God's word is living and that it endures, therefore, number one, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted, put a circle around, tasted that the Lord is good. When a little child comes into our hearts and into our lives, they crave milk. They they crave food. It's always been amazing to me as I held my three little daughters, how tiny they were, but they had built-in vocal cords. And let me tell you, it didn't take much for me to know or for Sandy to know that they needed to be fed. And the issue here is, he says, as newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. He's talking here about the truth that we find from this book. That word crave means to have an intense desire for the word of God. To have a desire, uh, an intensity. Once a little child is hungry to be fed they will cry until they receive the food they need. They are craving it. And the only way that they can be satisfied is when you give them the milk, either from the mother or from a bottle. That is how little babies are nurtured. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. When we are taking in the word of God, we will be content and satisfied and happy. When we are not taking in the word of God, when we are not feeding ourselves spiritually on a daily basis, we will always be out of sorts. Because we haven't taken in that nourishment that is so necessary to sustain our spiritual lives. If we're not filling our minds with God's thoughts daily, we're starving ourselves spiritually And it won't be long before we find ourselves in a spiritual desert. Wandering through life with no power or no strength. And it's very interesting here that the Apostle Peter says that the prerequisite to an intense desire for the living word is that we must say no to spiritual appetite inhibitors. And there are five of them. You may want to jot these down. There are five inhibitors that will keep you from the book. It's very interesting as you analyze these. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of, and then he lists these five things we're to rid ourselves of. It all has to do with our relationships with one another. It's very interesting that the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says we need to be in relational harmony if we are to really crave and take in the Word of God on a regular basis. Now, the first thing he says we need to get rid of, remember, remember he's talking to Christians now. He's not, he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to those in the body of Christ. And he says, therefore, rid yourselves, first of all, of all malice. And malice, when you see it in Scripture, is a deep hatred 
we have for others because of our own self-centeredness or selfishness. If we wish anyone ill, our appetite for the things of God will not be strong. Now malice may have been part of our lives before coming to Christ, but afterwards malice should not control us in any way. It has absolutely no place in the life of a believer. Number two, deceit. We need to rid ourselves of deceit. And it's a very strong command here, continue on ridding yourselves of all deceit. Stop being two-faced, tricky, or clever. That's what that means. Dehan, Richard Dehan, Radio Bible Class, says deceit is the clever manipulation of people to serve one's own ends. And we are guilty of guile or deceit when we misquote someone in order to hurt them or to make misleading statements about others or to write others off because we don't agree with them. Deceit. Deceit is a killer. We need to jettison that. Instead, we need to pattern our lives after Jesus. Look at chapter 2 and verse 22. It is said of Christ, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. So if we want to have a healthy appetite for the Word of God, first of all, we need to get rid of malice. We need to get rid of deceit. Number three, we need to get rid of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, we all know, is play-acting, pretending to be someone we're not. Number four, we need to get rid of envy. Barclay, in his commentary, says, Envy is the last sin to die. Remember, envy even got into the ranks of the disciples. Remember, they started arguing on over who's going to be greater in the kingdom. And they're fussing over who's going to be greater in the kingdom. And not one of them stoops to wash the feet of one another. And the Lord sees these quarreling disciples arguing over place and position and power. And what does the king of glory do? He girts himself with a towel. He gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. Envy. Envy has destroyed relationships more than anything else. Why is it? that we just can't seem to see someone else prosper. Remember, it was envy that caused Joseph's brothers to sell him as a slave to Egypt. They envied Joseph. Envy is a subtle sin, and we need to jettison it. And then lastly, slander. Slander means to cast off or to speak down at a person or cut down another person, discrediting another, belittling someone else when we don't have the courage to check out the facts before we pass judgment. See, the Bible says any kind of gossip is sin. Gossip is sin. James says that when we know to do good and don't do it, To him, it is sin. We miss the mark. 
So Peter says, if you want to have a real appetite for spiritual things, if you want to really crave the Word of God, then you need to jettison those spiritual appetite inhibitors and replace them with two spiritual appetite enhancers. Get rid of the inhibitors and replace them with enhancers. The first enhancer is to crave the Word of God. He says, verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, you've tasted because you have craven, you have partaken of the milk of the Word of God. Now, let's put it this way. Once you taste something, and it really tastes good, you want what? More, more. You want more of it. And this is what happens in our spiritual lives. Once we taste that the Lord is good, once we allow God's truth to transform us and we have tasted the goodness of God and the word of God has taken root in our lives, we can never get enough of it. You believe that? You can never get enough of the word of God. And as you keep on tasting, the more you keep on craving and the more you crave, you keep satisfying that craving by tasting and enjoying this feast that God has for us every single day in His Word. Man, I will never forget the experience Sandy and I had in China a number of years ago. For three weeks, we ate with chopsticks. And for three weeks, we had no ice. And for three weeks, we tasted things we had never tasted before, and they weren't really satisfying. And by the end of that three weeks, I was craving. I was craving some silverware. I was, I was, I was craving, you know, some ice and some ice cream and a good old-fashioned American hamburger. You, you see, once, once you taste the goodness of God, you can never get enough. The Word of God is pure. You cannot take God's Word into your being on a regular basis without having it change your life and sweeten your relationships and make you a kind and a gentle, joyful Christ follower. And then number two, you can count on God's word to deliver on all that it promises. The Bible says that the promises of God are yea and amen. Every promise. It's the old, old hymn. We don't sing it very often anymore. Every promise in the book is, well, some of you remember. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Okay. The promises of God are yea and amen. God will always deliver on his promise. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Notice, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. Praise Jesus. This is a book that you can count on.
This is a book that you can rely upon. This is a roadmap that leads straight to heaven. God's word is supernatural truth. It is living, it is lasting, and it is lucid. It's spiritual power that we cannot live without. As the living word, it saturates us with spiritual life. As the lasting word, it strengthens us with spiritual power. And as the lucid word, it stimulates us to growth and maturity. This book is our life. And we want to allow God's truth every single day to penetrate our hearts. If we wait till Sunday morning to open this book, some of those spiritual inhibitors will keep us from this book. But when we are in this book, we will crave more and more. Once we taste it, we will keep on craving and we will keep on counting on God to deliver on everything he promised. And all God's people say, Father in heaven, we love you. This book is a powerful book. It is a life-transforming book. It is a book that lives and lasts. It's a book that's absolutely clear. And so, Lord, today may we renew our commitment to be students of your book, to crave, to long for, to hunger for truth in this book. Instead of it becoming a dust collector on our shelf, may it become our support system, our life, our joy. May it become our very best friend. May we hide your word in our hearts so that we do not sin against you. Help us, Lord, to rid ourselves of anything that would distract us from this book. And may we crave it. May we live it. May we hunger for it. And may we walk in obedience to it until we see you face to face someday. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha, lo he comes. God bless you. Have a great day.